You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Nursing home operators here say they're now in the front line in the fight against COVID-19, with almost half of all deaths linked to the virus occurring among those in their care. The HSE is to conduct a national study of the prevalence of the virus in nursing and other care homes. Extra supports, of course, have been announced for nursing homes. And according to Nursing Homes Ireland, they are working well where they've been introduced, but it says implementation has been been inconsistent across the country. Last night, our reporter Louise Burns spoke to one nursing home provider from the east of the country. The woman, who does not want to identify her premises, says a considerable number of residents in the 34-bed facility have tested positive for COVID-19, and in recent days, three patients have died. You know, we knew it was coming. Uh, We were trying to prevent it as long as we could. We restricted uh, visiting to the nursing home from the 6th of March um, and very much on a strict basis. Did you feel that that level of caution was being replicated at a state level? Um, No, I had consulted um, a higher authority and they had said there's no need um, that you shouldn't restrict visits at this stage um, and to do as we are doing. We needed to plan at the earliest opportunity um, and the guidelines should have been in place for long-term care facilities as a priority in line with national legislation. I sent emails, I didn't get a response to them. Um, My words were that it was potentially, it, it will be potentially catastrophic to nursing homes if COVID comes in. Um, and it is. It was just over two weeks ago um, and we had two residents um, who had high temperatures. Five days later, we got results um, which showed that they were COVID positive. Um, The alarming thing, Louise, is that there was a memo on the 21st of March um, that in terms of residents in long-term care facilities, if there was two confirmed cases that anyone else would be assumed to have COVID-19. They would not have access to a test. There were other residents that fit the criteria for testing, but their referral was redundant because of the policy. They changed the criteria last Thursday. As soon as they lifted the restriction, I got straight on the phone to the GPs um, who were fantastic in supporting our urgent referral um, to the National Ambulance Service. Um, And then the next day, the National Ambulance Service came down. We got results back then on Saturday um, and um, it was very upsetting. A good many of our residents had tested COVID positive. We're we're dealing with, you know, a a very serious issue on, on the floor, you know. You know, we have unfortunately had some bereavements and um, it, it has been most difficult. Um, and it's been especially difficult when we know our residents so well, when we know that they, they're so vulnerable that they can't have a, a family member holding their hand and being around their bed, you know. Some of the residents have um, symptomatically advanced and um, they have been majorly impacted by the effect of the COVID virus. We're facilitating window visits and, and calls and um, it's, it's very, very sad. They, they, the, the families will come um, and to the window and um, we will facilitate the visit to some level and then we'll just leave families just talk and if they want to, you know, um, pass any messages in, 
over the window you know it's it's not easy I'll tell you that you know um and especially when you're you're dealing with residents who you love as well you know um we had um two priests visit the car park last week um just to say that they're lending their support um to each and every resident and staff member here were you getting the PPE that you needed are you getting the PPE that you need no we had to go we had to procure our own PPE um we have received PPE from um the HSE any of my procurement orders that i had put through they weren't fulfilled and complete to put it into context today i got 15 gowns yesterday i got 18 gowns is that enough for what you need absolutely not not even for an hour um we are fighting locally here um so hard beyond belief we are doing everything that we can for our residents i'm running on adrenaline and i'm running on the premise that my mom and dad are well and i'm in a position where i can look after other people's parents and i'm working with a team they are absolutely fantastic and they are doing everything they can they're working as many hours as they can we are in a position that we can make a difference it's um it's surreal um and it's brutal one nursing home operator from the east of the country speaking there to our reporter Louise Byrne. We're joined now by Dr. Imara Hearn, consultant geriatrician at Cork University Hospital. A very good morning to you, Dr. Hearn. Yeah, Thank you very morning, much for, for speaking to us. I mean, that's a very vivid description of what I imagine very many nursing home operators around the country are facing at the moment. And we know that 1% of the population, those in nursing and care homes, account for half the deaths or almost half the deaths linked to COVID. Is that a reflection of their particular vulnerability? Or is it a reflection of the failure to adequately protect them and support those who are caring for them? No, I, and I, the reports that are coming out and, your, and the report from earlier on, I mean, it, it is very concerning. And what we are seeing in Ireland at the moment is we haven't seen the anticipated surge in our hospitals yet, but we certainly are seeing the surge in nursing home and residential facilities. And this is really... As a result of this pandemic, this is as expected. We have seen in other countries that have um, gone before us, you know, that there is an increased mortality for those aged 70 and over, and especially for those who have comorbidities. And certainly those who are in nursing homes in Ireland or in residential homes are there because they are dependent for care um, and they have needs, including comorbidities, that makes them more vulnerable. Certainly our public health message is that we're trying to cocoon all these people, and this is the message that is really going through in our communities and more so even for people in our nursing homes. So it's very difficult to create that cocooning within that environment. I suppose, first of all, I would like to say that, you know, most older people actually will recover from COVID disease, whether at home or in our communities in nursing homes. And I think it's very important for people who are living in nursing homes and in their own homes, and certainly for their family and friends to know that. Mm. Although it's very heartwarming to see people coming home, recovering on the, on the news, actually most people do recover from this illness. And I think that is very important to remember and to reassure people. But in the nursing home setting, um, in order to promote that recovery, the staff there are going to have to be uh, equipped to do that, both in terms of their own training, their confidence that they can carry out what's required of them, that they have the, the right personal protection equipment. And we heard that operator there say that what she's got over the last couple of, of days wouldn't even uh, cover an hour uh, of, of what's required in terms of that, uh, that protective, all-important protective equipment. 
Oh, no, absolutely, and it's critically important. But I would say that in our nursing homes, we have a huge amount of expertise in our nursing homes pre-COVID, during COVID, and after COVID that provide healthcare to older people. These are healthcare institutions that have always been providing healthcare to older, vulnerable people. There's nursing expertise in there. There's medical expertise in there. And we have the ability to support these people when they do get sick with fluids, nutrition, antibiotics, and oxygen. Absolutely, the critical is that we need to support them with the equipment to protect the patients and the staff within those nursing homes. And certainly from what I'm hearing is that while not there yet, it's certainly getting better every day. And this is something that is actually fundamental so that we can care for these people in the places that they call homes. Mm. And also it's very important, I suppose a huge issue for the nursing homes is really the staffing issue in that they don't have, you simultaneously have staff and residents getting sick together. And unfortunately, nursing homes don't have, you know, the uh, capacity, you know, to bring in more staff to safely staff those units. And that's huge. That's a huge challenge facing nursing homes. So should that be looked at from the point of view of the the resources available in the health system as a whole? For example, um, many other parts of the hospital system, um, uh, people aren't now going in for various uh, uh, processes. So are there staff available there that could be reallocated? Oh, no, absolutely. And we're looking at ways of doing this all the time. And to be honest, we have performed kind of cross-sector working that we never would have thought imaginable before this. We are working across all sectors now and people are being deployed from one sector to another. And this used to never happen before. There was all those silos and those working. So this is, you know, unbelievable that we have this. And I think certainly what we need to do is re- really to work on that and actually to deploy staff from different sectors within the health service to support the nursing homes to deliver the expert care that we do. I mean, it's vital important that the HSC and the Department of Health examine this and actually support and endorse nursing homes to do this but certainly within Cork what, we, what each community area has developed is um, specialist teams to support the nursing homes which consists of public health, infection control, nursing, geriatrician mm-hmm. and if necessary palliative medicine specialist advice and what we are trying to do is to work with the lo- our own lo- local nursing homes to actually to support them and to create a bank of nursing so that if the situation does occur that staff are out as a result of illness or self-isolation that we do have staff that can be redeployed there because ultimately this is people's homes they have lived there for a long time a lot of them want to remain there and can remain there to to receive and their care and and dr hearn those who who need a further level of care who who need hospitalization and um, if they're to make a full recovery simon harris insists that there is a pathway there for everybody regardless of their age or their uh, their medical condition uh, there's a pathway there for them to get that treatment is that the case um, that can people and families be confident that if that care is needed it'll be provided that is absolutely the case. There are a number of patients in our hospital here that are in from nursing homes that have both COVID and, non, and non-COVID related illnesses and people are from nursing homes. And certainly, if, if hospital care is required, our hospitals all over the country, we are ready to receive those patients and we have the capacity to receive those patients. So there isn't any issue at all that people, if they need hospital care, can access and get hospital care. No issue and at all about if that. They need, if they need access to intensive care, to ICU care, there's this report this morning we've heard about a little earlier about a hospital that supposedly or, or hospital group running a point system is that is that the way this is this is decided no it's not um, certainly each other like any person that needs ex- escalation of care within a hospital so what we would do and what is professional best practice is that each case would be looked at and discussions and decisions made on an individual case by case basis you would examine the person ask what their goals and values are what they would want from care 
you know, what their comorbidities are. And I suppose it's very important when we talk about care here is that there isn't any life-saving treatment for COVID illness when patients come in here. We don't have a treatment for that. The treatment at the moment is what people are doing in communities all over the country by staying at home, staying apart and washing their hands. What right. we have here is treatment that will actually support a person to get better themselves that will support a person to recover so you need to look at the person and their potential that they can recover and that they can recover from this illness but certainly every case needs to be made on a case-by-case basis with discussions with the patients themselves their friends and family and with the doctors and that is certainly that was the norm in practice before this it's currently the norm and it will continue to be afterwards Uh, Dr. Emer O'Hearn from Cork University Hospital thank you for talking to us 67 days since the general election, still no new government, but the leaders of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have agreed a framework document with promises to deal with COVID-19, healthcare, childcare and more. They'll put it to their TDs, senators and MEPs later today, then to their party members and hope that it can persuade other parties and or independent TDs to help form a new government. Together, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are eight seats short of being able to form a government on their own. We'll talk to Fianna Fáil's Michael McGrath later in the programme. Let's talk now with our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham. Morning, Paul. What is this framework document and, and what does agreeing it mean? And what it is, is probably around between a dozen and 15 pages in which Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are going to outline their priorities for an administration for the next four to five years. It doesn't go into the detail, but it does give broad brushstrokes of their intent. Things like more state-led involvement in providing things like childcare, better and fair access to housing and putting a priority on dealing with COVID-19 and the inevitable economic recovery which is going to be required. So that is what it says. The purpose of it is to try and entice um, parties like the Social Democrats, the Greens and Labour to take the next step, which would be to enter into some form of discussions or negotiations with these two big parties on how a a programme for government could be pulled together. We are living in bizarre times. We don't know what the economic cycle is going to be like in five months, let alone five years. So it is a very difficult spot that the smaller parties find themselves. But that is the intent and purpose. Will it be shown to all parties, including Sinn Féin? Well, um, the media usually helps in these situations, Gavin, so we expect that um, uh, the document will be emailed to the TDs, senators and MEPs from both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil by two o'clock, and I'd say everyone will have it within the hour. Um, but um, if it is passed by the parliamentary parties today, um, it's likely that the leaders of Social Democrats, the Greens and Labour will get it either tonight or tomorrow, as well as the leaders of the independent um, blocks, the three blocks that have also been formed the rural independence, the regional independence and the independent bloc. So effectively, nearly all politicians will have it. With regard to Sinn Féin, I think they'll be reading about it rather than actually receiving a copy of it from the parties, but they'll know what's in it, yes. Who's likely to be persuaded by it and how? I think that's impossible to say. Um, all three of the parties who are effectively being targeted by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have expressed a reluctance to go into government. They are um, concerned that this is a centre-right government rather than centre-left. They don't believe that it delivers on what the voters called for. They would have liked to have seen Sinn Féin to have been part of the um, of the makeup of the next government or at least involved in talks. They are deeply concerned about the financial um, dire situation 
situation which Ireland finds itself and will be concerned about how Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael would try to work their way out of it. So all three of those parties, the Social Democrats, Labour and Greens, will be um, mindful of what happened to smaller parties before and all of that adds up to a, a big concern about taking the next step. However, I think just because you agree to enter into talks with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael doesn't mean you are necessarily going to have to go into government with them. So I think it's likely that one or two of them will probably take that next step. But I, I just simply couldn't tell you um, with any degree of certainty um, which party w- it would be. Is there a reasonable expectation that Micheál Martin will be the next Taoiseach? Can we expect a Fianna Fáil health minister? I think we can expect that um, Micheál Martin will be the Taoiseach if it is the case that this um, is finally agreed. I mean, maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because if you just consider the, the steps that has to happen, first it has to go through the parliamentary parties today, then it has, they have to, a third party has to rent, agree to enter into talks, then they have to finalise a deal then it has to be voted through by each of the parliamentary parties and then it has to go to the party membership. And if you look at the Greens, they require a two-thirds majority. So we are still a long way off from being able to talk about jobs. But yes, both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have signalled that Micheál Martin would be the um, first man to be Taoiseach and that would ultimately be rotated then with Leo Varadkar. When it comes to further ministries down the line, I, I don't think we can say that just yet. Realistically, when will or could a government be formed? I mean, we expect a government formation to take a while given the result and the precedent from the last time. But given the current crisis, this can't go on for much longer, can it? I think it will go on for much longer. I think it's unlikely that anything will be done in May. It's certainly June before you're likely to um, have a conclusion to this, even if you consider that um, if this document is passed to the parties today, um, they won't really get a chance to look at it on Thursday because the oil is back. They'll probably consider it over the weekend. It'll be next week before we get an indication that they'll go into talks, and that's only going into talks. Then they still have to go through the hoops I, I mentioned earlier on. So I don't think this is going to be resolved in a matter of of days it's going to be weeks if not months will there be dissent today do you expect from the parliamentary parties when they see this document I think there is certainly going to be dissent. There's deep concern within Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. We are talking about nearly 100 years of civil war politics being pushed to one side. There are people in um, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil um, who are deeply concerned about going in and what it means for their party in the long term, that there may be a short-term political requirement to form a government, but that ultimately over the years when COVID-19 is settled, but the economic hangover is still around, that it will do damage to the parties. Um, I heard that you've got... Michael McGraw, one of their uh, party's chief negotiators for Fianna Fáil on the show, he will be only too aware of the views of people like Eamon O'Keeve, who said it's a mistake for Sinn Féin to be excluded, and there is deep concern among many members within Fianna Fáil that um, this could be uh, bad for the party. So I think those those voices will be heard today, both on Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and the Fine Gael negotiator Simon Coveney trying to steady the horses, writing last night to Fine Gael councillors, talking about the deep concern he recognises and acknowledges that it's within the party but feels that there's no credible alternative that they have to talk to Fianna Fáil. So dissent, concern, it's certainly there and it will be voiced. uh, Paul, thank you. That's our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham. 
An Irishman is being questioned by Gardaí as part of an international investigation into what's described as a sophisticated 15 million euro COVID-19 scam. The investigation was launched when the German health authorities made an upfront online payment of one and a half million euro for face masks, only to discover that the website advertising the equipment was being operated by scammers. Barry O'Kelly of RT Investigates has the story and he joins us now. So Barry, what's the background to this? Uh, the background is that the, the worldwide shortage of personal protection equipment has led to an increased demand for these products online and increased opportunities for scammers. And one of the biggest scams uncovered to date is being investigated by Interpol and the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau here. This case involves a supply order for 14.7 million euros worth of antivirus face masks. This scam emerged after German health authorities tried to purchase face masks online from a website in Spain which appeared to be linked to a legitimate company However, they later discovered the website had been cloned by scammers, as Chief Superintendent Pat Lorden of the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau now explains. The purchaser went onto a website which he thought was a genuine website of a genuine company in Spain, but actually he wasn't on that website at all. He was on a fictitious, uh, a cloned website, which was not real. So despite the fact that he thought he was purchasing uh, 14.7 million euros worth of face masks, they didn't exist on this website. He was never going to get not even one mask. As Chief Superintendent Pat Lord in there. So how did the scam unfold from there, Barry? Um, pretending to be the legitimate company in Spain, the fraudsters initially said they could not deliver the masks. But as a consolation, they referred the buyers to what they described as a trusted dealer in Ireland. This Irish middleman promised to put them in touch with a different supplier, this time in the Netherlands. And then an agreement for an additional delivery of 1.5 million masks was made in exchange for an upfront payment of 1.5 million euros. The buyers from Germany then initiated a bank transfer to Ireland. But it gets worse. Just before the delivery date, the German health authorities were informed that the funds had not been received in Ireland and that an emergency transfer of €880,000 straight to the Dutch supplier was required to secure the merchandise. The Germans then sent this second payment to Holland. So now a total of almost €2.4 million was paid out to the accounts in Holland and Ireland. It turns out the Dutch company did not did exist, but their website had also been cloned. So unbeknownst to the German authorities who arranged for 52 lorries and a police escort to collect these masks, these masks never existed. So the scam was reported to Interpol. What happened from there? Interpol contacted the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau in Dublin and the funds were tracked down by detectives from the Bureau. The account owner was identified and 1.5 million euros in the account is now frozen. A 45-year-old Irish national from the west of Ireland has been interviewed by detectives here. Here's Chief Superintendent Pat Lorden of the Garda National National Economic Crime Bureau again. We've identified a bank account in Ireland where 1.5 million came into the account from abroad. Uh, This account, working with the uh, financial institutions here in Ireland, the money has been frozen and the money will be returned. We're currently... um, working to establish why did this money come into the account, uh, where it came from and what that person knew about the, the whole scam that was going on. Have there been arrests elsewhere too, Barry? The Dutch Fiscal Information and Investigation Service, their Financial Crimes Police, they identified the €880,000 which had been transferred from the German company, but nearly €500,000 of that money was subsequently sent to Britain, and all of those funds were destined for an account in Nigeria. 
However, Europol contacted the British bank, which was able to recall the full amount. That money has now been returned to the Netherlands and has been frozen by the authorities. This operation has been going on now for a number of weeks and Guardi are working with police forces in Germany, in Holland and Spain and a number of people have already been arrested in Holland and further arrests are expected. Okay, Barry O'Kelly of RT Investigates. Many thanks for that. We're all aware of the increased demands on particular food products in supermarkets over the last number of weeks, but that's placed a big pressure on food producers here who've been working hard to keep the supply lines open at a time when they're also facing restrictions on work practices and movement. Let's talk to our reporter Aoife, Kavanagh, because, Aoife Hegarty, rather, because Aoife, you've been uh, talking with two food producers and how they're getting on. What did you find out? Well, Brian, I first spoke with Tom Kyo, Managing Director of the Potato and Crisp Company Kyo's. Now, the arrival of the coronavirus has had a massive impact on their business. In a way, it's been a double-edged sword in that they've seen huge demand from the large multiples for their potatoes and demand for their snack products has shot up by almost 130% in some lines. That's as families who are spending more time indoors, they're buying those large sharing packs of crisps and popcorn. But on the other hand, sales on the food service side, so in restaurants, cafes and service stations, that's completely dried up. Nonetheless, as an essential service, Kyo's have had to keep the show on the road, but that's meant implementing significant changes. The reality is the food manufacturing industry relies hugely on a manual labour force and uh, we've had to do uh, a lot of things to try to protect those people because in protecting those people, we're protecting our business and we're, we're protecting our supply of food through to the supermarkets. You know, straight away, we, we've, everybody's wearing a mask on site. Every morning, uh, it's actually twice a day, people's temperatures are checked coming into work. We have all the correct procedures about reporting to their managers if they feel sick, etc. I suppose one of the most difficult aspects has been trying to enforce the social distancing, especially in production facilities whereby people actually have to stand in quite close proximity to each other so we've had to amend our production um, production lines we've had to put up where we pretty much can't separate people we've had to put up the perspex screens between people to make sure that there is protection there it has been difficult um, but thankfully uh, to date we have not had any issues and people are continuing to come into work so if a while kills are benefiting in one way from the current situation, it hasn't come without challenge. And I gather they have concerns of a potential shortage of potatoes here. Yes, well, while businesses like Kyo's can plan for predicted busy periods, the current surge in demand caused by the coronavirus, it's caught them completely on the hop. And as we'll hear now from Tom, that means that there's a real fear that potato stocks could run very low. Christmas is the only thing that we can kind of relate this to from a volume point of view. But we pretty much have had two to three Christmases in the last three weeks. It's been, it's been absolutely huge. We had about 10 to 15% of the national crop was overwintered because we had such a bad winter, very wet. Uh, here on our farm, we had about 20% of our crop overwintered, which we only finished harvesting about 10 days ago. So we had an element of the crop still on the ground. We don't know how much of that that has been salvaged. For March, our own business here, our fresh potato volumes were between 40 and 50% increased on March of last year. So if that trend continues through April, May, and, and even June, then we could be in a, in a, in a very, very tight position when it comes to uh, trying to supply potatoes to the market. Aoife, you also spoke with another food producer, Greensberry Farm in Gorey in County Wicklow. 
Yeah, for John Green, who owns Greensbury Farm, he finds himself in a different situation. We're coming into the summer months now when strawberries are most in demand. But for him, the peak of the coronavirus outbreak is coming just at a time when his strawberries would be typically ripening and ready for picking. Now, John is remaining positive, but that situation does present a massive challenge for him, as every year around this time, he'd usually be preparing to welcome workers from abroad to come and help pick his tar- his harvest. But travel restrictions imposed to try and limit the spread of the virus mean that can't happen at the moment. We would have 15 pickers lined up with flights from Slovakia, Poland, Ukraine. We've already paid €1,000 for each person for a permit from Ukraine. You know, right now, so I'm not sure how that's going to go. And then the other aspect of it is that we've got about uh, another 200,000 strawberry plants to come in, still to be planted from there in the cold store in Holland at the moment. And they're bought and paid for. Um, we have to plant them. Um, they've got a short shelf life. You know, they won't survive beyond, let's say, June anyway. Uh, so they've got to be planted. Thank God we'd gone through a really good period. Um, if we hadn't, I'm not sure if we'd survive this summer if we had a problem because uh, our last sale would have been in the middle of October last year. So that's the last time we had cash flow. So if you think then there's, uh, I mean, this is typical for this business. That's fine. We can live with that. We know we're not going to sell any product from the end of October until maybe the middle of May. But if the middle of May comes now, seven months after the last cash flow, and we don't have cash flow for another two or three months or wipe off an entire summer. And I think that's going to be the really interesting bit. Where does the line of the economy and the health of the nation cross? You know, at what point are we going to say, okay, you know, the health of the nation is not impacted too badly anymore, and we've now got to rescue the economy. So where does that leave John Green and his berries, Aoife? Well, it means he's had to put a plan in place, which essentially has seen them slow down the ripening process in the hope the coronavirus situation will calm down in the next while and his workers can fly in to pick the strawberries. Now, we'll tweet some photos from the Morning Ireland account of what the strawberries looked like in February in comparison to what they look like today. But in this next clip, John explains the process himself. The first thing we did was we started to slow down our crops, right? Because uh, we aimed to pick our fruit beginning on the 1st of May. And uh, we said, no, there's going to be nobody about on the 1st of May. We mightn't have anyone to pick it. And we decided to take the fleeces off and cool down the tunnels and basically delay the crop by a month, hoping that by the 1st of June. And the reason I say the 1st of June is because our farm is very much dependent on ex-farm sales. Um, it's a really good location. Last summer, about 40,000 cars came through our gate. And... Um, as I look at the window right now, there isn't a car passing the gate. We miss a, a June bank holiday or whatever. You never regain it. You know, you're going to see it in your bottom line at the end of the year. And that's uh, John Green ending that report from Aoife Hegarty. Thank you very much indeed for that, Aoife. Local authorities across the country are reporting a worrying increase in illegal dumping since the outbreak of COVID-19. The ongoing restrictions have led many to clean out their houses and sheds, with some people dumping their waste illegally. Our North East correspondent Sinead Hussey has been to counties Louth and Meath, where both local authorities have reported a rise in dumping and littering. It's a beautiful morning in Drada. The community wardens are out at work. 
Oh, we're coming across uh, a lot of domestic uh, refuse. Um, we're coming across sofas, washing machines, TVs, toys, children's bicycles. We arrive at a place known locally as Dummy Lane. It's a quiet back road with very little traffic. Here, several black bags filled with domestic waste are dumped in a stream. A television lies on top. A broken table and chair are nearby. Director of Services with Louth County Council, Catherine Duff, says this is becoming a frequent site. We've noticed probably a 25% increase in dumping over the last uh, four to five weeks. Um, like we're collecting maybe around 30 bags a day and we've collected maybe over um, two tonnes in, in 10 days. So yes, a, a significant increase countywide, uh, but particularly in the urban areas. I suppose this time of the year is spring clean time anyway, and um, we also have obviously very good weather, but also people are at home for the last sort of four to six weeks, and uh, that has led to an additional increase over what would be normal. Uh, so people are doing DIY jobs, they're doing clean outs, and, um, and while a lot of people are uh, legally getting rid of their waste, unfortunately there is a minority that are unfortunately dumping in, in certain areas. Civic amenity sites are still open. In Laos, there's been a 10% increase in the number of people visiting them in recent weeks. But yet, some people continue to flout the law. Catherine Duff says there's fines and penalties for those who do. Ultimately, you can uh, be, end up in court and have a, a conviction. Uh, resulting in a two and a half thousand euro fine ultimately but that is not where um, we're trying to we're trying to get people on board at the moment in county meath it's a similar story here we meet community warden alan nolan even as you can see in the back of my van from where i was yesterday approximately 200 meters up the road since yesterday these bags have been dumped on the side of the road just dropped out indiscriminately he brings us to a scenic area between Navan and Slane. In the last four weeks, three to four weeks, we have seen our workload quadruple. Um, individual bags more so than large quantities of dumping. But as you've seen up the road there a while ago this morning, we have had 25 bags of rubbish dumped in across a bridge into a water course that meets with the River Boy in here. In, in what we call an absolute beauty spot in County Meads. Um, it's obviously a house clear out. What we're finding and what we're putting together is that people that were previously working on building sites or factory environments bringing their bags possibly putting them into the skip at work or the bin at work no longer are able to do so because they're out of work what they're doing now is dropping the bags on the side of the road to try and address the increase in illegal dumping Meath County Council has already waived the two euro gate fee at its recycling centres in Navan, Trim and Kells and from today it's also getting rid of a five euro charge for a bin bag of waste. Bernadine Carey is the environmental officer with the local authority. Normally there's a charge for residual waste, so when all the recyclables are free, uh, there's a five euro charge for a big black sack of waste. We're going to take away that charge on a temporary basis so that if people are coming to visit the recycling centre, they can bring their black bags of waste to, the guys on site will take them off them, they'll put them straight into the compactor. And we're hoping that will encourage people to use the centres, you know, treat their waste reasonably. And it's much better from our point of view than picking it off the side of the road or trying to fish it out of a river. And that was Bernadine Carey ending that report from Sinead Hossier. 
Well, those figures released by the Chief Medical <clears throat> Officer yesterday evening that 199 people in community settings have died from COVID-19, that's over half of all deaths, will cause fear, anxiety and concern. Around 40,000 people live in nursing homes, mental health facilities and centres for people with disabilities. And just to repeat what Fergal said there, because it's worth repeating, it means that over half of the number of COVID-19 deaths here are among less than 1% of our population. And these people and those who care for them are on some of the lowest incomes. They feel isolated, invisible and even abandoned in our society. Well, our reporter Tommy Meskell has been examining how the pandemic is impacting on people living with disabilities from missing out on vital therapies and supports to the very profound ethical questions around who gets priority treatment in the event of our hospitals being overwhelmed. And Tommy, you've been talking to one man who has cerebral palsy and a woman whose child has cerebral palsy. What did they say to you? I was, yes. The first person I spoke to was Porrick Dormer from Dublin. He's 48 and is cocooning along with his father. And I also spoke to Amanda Kyo from Kildare. Her 12-year-old boy has cerebral palsy, is a wheelchair user and is non-verbal. For Porrick, though, in Dublin, access to video chat applications have allowed him to continue some classes that he would have attended before. However, as you'll hear now, loneliness is the toughest part for him. My family and friends are very good and they do shopping for, for us and we can go in the garden and they stand at the gate and we share, we we talk to them over the gate. Is loneliness the hardest part? Yes, very much because like my my niece and nephew come to me and my brother and sister come down to the house but I can't hug my nephew or nieces or I like it from a distance they can't come close to me like because you would be considered vulnerable as well as everything vulnerable, else yeah I'm not I'm not scared of anything on the on there in the front, but deep down, I'm I'm very fearful of things. But I try to smile and have a laugh with everyone because I don't want to bring everyone down. My name is Amanda Kyo. I'm the mother of Tyke Kyo who has cerebral palsy and global developmental delay, which means he has both a physical and learning disability and is non-verbal. We are grateful we are in lockdown because obviously we wouldn't want Tyg getting sick with this because he wouldn't be able to tell us if he had one of the symptoms. I mean, if you, if you think of the symptoms, a sore throat and, you know, the cough and the fever, with um, with Tyke, he could have a high temperature for a tooth on a regular basis because he cannot express that to us. We always have to guess what's wrong. So for something like this, it's a huge worry because I would hate it to go too far and we didn't react quick enough. He is missing his normal life and he did find the first week tough. Is that, is that fair to say? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first week he was totally thrown because his routine had changed so much. And I suppose so suddenly as well, um, he wasn't sleeping well at all. One night he didn't sleep at all for the whole night and he wasn't eating very well. So again, that was a worry because we had to, I suppose, Desifer, was that because of the routine changing or was he unwell? But after we could see, yeah, it's the routine has thrown him and he was off his food and off his sleep pattern but then coming into the second week he kind of settled a bit more yeah, thankfully Tyg and the family are adjusting to self-isolation and while exercise is difficult the family are discovering new ways to keep Tyg moving Tommy, I mentioned these profound ethical questions in my introduction regarding how people of all ages with disabilities will be treated if our hospitals are overwhelmed if ICU equipment has to be rationed will you tell us more about that Yes, and it's worth saying too that the hope would be that Ireland can avoid reaching a point where decisions like those will have to be made. Nevertheless, we've not reached the peak and so the Department of Health published the ethical framework for decision-making in a pandemic. And this document will help guide healthcare professionals should decisions regarding the rationing of equipment ever have to be made. Uh, There is also a further document dealing with ethical considerations when it comes to critical care. Now, there's concern over a line in the first document that is called in concern. It states that a patient's frailty status, independent of age, as well as other factors, are all relevant when deciding how equipment should be rationed. Basically, some people like Tom Clonan, whose 18-year-old son Owen has neuromuscular disease and has compromised lung function, are worried about the words independent of age. He fears that young people with stable long-term disabilities could be considered frail. Uh, Unlike our European neighbours and Uh, out of step with international best practice, WHO guidelines, UN guidelines and so on. Um, There is no guarantee there uh, for people with disabilities that they will not be, uh, if you like, uh, rationed this care on the basis of their disability. So, for example, uh, things like Down syndrome, autism, uh, cerebral palsy. And and so what I'm looking for is just a simple one-line amendment or addendum to that document to give us that reassurance. Now, after hearing from Tom, I contacted Enable Ireland, who have 8,500 service users, adults and children. Here is what their CEO, John O'Sullivan, had to say. I think Tom's point is, is a good idea. I actually think it would strengthen the framework. It's very much in keeping with the UN Convention of the Rights for uh, People with Disabilities, which we have been seeking to see fully implemented for some time now. And I believe, honestly, uh, an explicit statement would provide reassurance to people with disabilities. Um, I note that this is something that the USA and the UK have already done, and, and it's also been recommended by the UN's Special Rapporteur on Disabilities. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties have also said that clarification on this would be helpful, adding that it is essential that the human rights of people with disabilities are protected. Uh, The Department of Health have responded in a statement last night. They said that in the accompanying document dealing with ethical considerations in critical care, it is stated that decisions should not be made in a way that would result in unfair discrimination and emphasises that no single factor should be taken in isolation when deciding how scarce resources are allocated in ICU. Tom Clonan, however, and the others are seeking an explicit reference to disability to allay their concerns. Tommy, thank you very much indeed. Tommy Meskel there in investigating that issue for us on Morning Ireland this morning.
People with health insurance will be given some of their money back over the next three months. That's because private hospitals have been effectively taken into the public system and so can't offer the private treatment that insurance provides for. About half the population pay for private health insurance, but many are struggling to keep up repayments because they've lost their jobs or are earning less money. Dermot Good of TotalHealthCover.ie, a health insurance advice website, is with us. Good morning again, Dermot. Anyone morning, with Gavin. a policy can expect something back. How much? Yeah, well, it's it's going to be pretty much, the figure is going to be similar across all three health insurance companies, but if uh, they're all showing out percentages of between, let's just say, 36 and 60%. But if we take a mid-level plan right now that costs around €1,300 uh, Euro per adult, that person is going to get back between €155 Euro and €195, Euro, depending on on which insurance company they're with and there'll also be a small amount back that to say for each child member as well so um, it really depends on which plan people have uh, the higher the plan you have um, the percentage refund will increase will be closer to 60% so um, so the good news here is that and there's not often good news now on health insurance but the good news is that um, between April and June as such and over the over the coming weeks the insurance companies are going to write to each member to confirm two things exactly what percentage refund exactly what amount of refund you're going to get and how they're going to give that to you uh, it will differ slightly um, VHI members and Irish Life Health members they're going to see a reduction in the amount that's deducted each month for them uh, so if they're currently paying 150 a month that will maybe drop down let's just say to 75 a month uh, for that three month period Leia Healthcare are adopting a different approach they will simply uh, they're describing theirs as a benefit uh, rather than a, a premium rebate so they will continue to deduct whatever the normal premium is but then they're going to send you a separate refund as I say there's a set at 195 per adult and 60 per child regardless of which plan you have so everybody everyone every person who has health insurance is going to benefit from this in some way what about people who can't pay it all at the moment can they stop and come back yeah, I'll tell you what they're doing as well. So the, the, the hope is, first of all, that for people who are under pressure, and there's going to be lots of people now that maybe this might not even be sufficient, but they're hoping, first of all, this will give people some respite. Um, the second thing then, Gavin, they've all put in place a number of, if we call it countermeasures. And effectively, what they're saying to members is that, look, if you are a distressed customer, if you are under pressure now to pay any premium over the next three months, you need to engage either with your broker or with your health insurance company straight away, because they're, they are are looking at doing things so for example they're talking about backloading premium where they may suspend your premium for a certain period and it'll be added on at the end they're also going to allow people to potentially reduce their their plan right down to the absolute minimum cover and if you upgrade within a certain period of time there will be no restrictions but there will also be some people regrettably who will have no option but to cancel their health insurance um, and I think they need to engage with the insurance companies immediately because I'm sure they will allow people if they rejoin within a certain period they may basically waive some of the of the normal waiting periods that would apply so hopefully it will help a lot of people avoid cancelling but I think it's inevitable Gavin that some people will still have no option but to do that and they need to talk to their insurance company straight away. Dermot why are health insurers doing this who asked them to and could they have gone further? 
Well, I think what's happening here is, um, as we all know, the private hospitals have effectively been leased by the public system. Now, the, the interesting thing, Gavin, is many claims are still coming in. Um, so the, the claims through the public system are still coming in as normal. That's between 80 and 800 euro per day. Um, any claims to do with mental illness, addiction services, private maternity, even private paediatrics, they're still coming in. A lot of the private MRI scan centres and a lot of the like the quick care, these private A&Es like VHI Swift Care and, and Afidi and Quick Care and so forth, those claims are still coming in. So what's happened is the insurance companies went on record. They wrote to all their clients basically saying, if there are savings on claims and if we can quantify those savings, we will pass on the savings. And that's what they've now done. I, I have to say, we were pleasantly surprised. I think the, the, the percentage refund that they're giving back is definitely at the higher end of what we expected. Um, I think it took longer than we thought it would take to get to this, but I think there were some difficulties quantifying uh, those savings. And I think the other thing as well, Gavin, that people should note is that hopefully this will be a three-month issue. But if it extends further than that, if the private hospitals have to be, if the leasing agreement has to be extended, all insurance companies have indicated that if the savings, uh, let's just say, are extend further than this three-month date, then they are likely to extend the concession. So definitely, I, I don't think they're holding anything back. Okay. I think this is as much as they can give. So look, at any savings on health insurance will be welcomed, I think, by all members. Dermot Good of TotalHealthCover.ie. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. As a nation, a good send-off has always been an important ritual, but as you'll know, at the moment, the Irish funeral is a much quieter presence. RTE has introduced a cross-platform initiative called Ireland Remembers, which will give recognition to each and every person who has died during this pandemic. Tom McGuire is the head of RTE Radio 1 and he joins us. Tom, will you explain what's happening and how people can get in touch? Well, it's exactly as you say, Rachel, it's an opportunity to remember and to remember individuals. I was just listening to Liveline this week to, to Dorothy Duffy remembering her sister Rose Mitchell. And she said she, the poem is there, not a statistic. So it is a chance for us as a community and as a society, because uh, farewell has been really important in this society. And it's a chance across radio, television and online for people to acknowledge those who have died at this time and haven't had the opportunity because of the restrictions on public assembly of communities, colleagues and families being able to gather to say farewell. So Ireland Remembers is firstly a memorial website and will be a memorial wall where families can, through their funeral director, submit a picture and name and place because name, place and face are so important and they can submit those and they will feature on that memorial wall for a number of months on rte.ie forward slash Ireland remembers. And in parallel with that, RT Radio 1 will beginning this Sunday evening at five minutes to six, but continuing in the schedule over the coming weeks and months, remember those people by name and on television each Sunday evening, starting this Sunday evening on RTE 1, just before six o'clock, those pictures will be seen again in a Memorial Ireland Remembers iteration. And it will also feature as the weeks go by on 6-1 News at various times. Tom, thanks for joining us. Tom McGuire there, head of RTE Radio 1, talking to us about Ireland Remembers. <music> 
as you probably know, on post has delivered over 5 million free postcards around the country to help us stay connected through writing during the lockdown. Well, over the past few days, we've been asking you to share an audio recording of a special message you have sent or received. We can take a listen now to some of the messages we've received so far. Hello, I'm Roisin Bergen and I got this letter from my auntie and gran in Kilkenny. Greetings from sunny Kilkenny to sunny Galway. Here's hoping it lasts, unlike the COVID-19. Here's hoping we will see you all soon enough frequenting the roads of Kilkenny, or maybe we will have to do a Zoom call. Take care, stay safe, and keep washing the paws. Love, Claire and Sadie. P.S. Brandy the dog says hello too. Woof, woof. Shagwitcha Uncle Podrick, Iranala. Tomid Galeir Xmainavert Agasixul Gamurla Tuishkant is big Kulkarm Vorgan in Yixa. Gromor of Wintry Ianon. My name is Bernadine and I'm living here in Kong County Mayo. My daughter Sarah and her husband Adrian are expecting their first child, my first grandchild, on May the fourth. So using one of the Ampost postcards, I took the opportunity to write to Bump yesterday. So this is what I sent. Yo Bump, it's 20 days until you are due to arrive and we are all very excited. Your mum tells me you are getting ready and are really engaging and doing all the right things. Good on ya. She also tells me you are not causing her any high blood pressure. This is excellent. Well done you. See you soon. Much love, Granny B. This is an unpost postcard to our nanny and granddad who live in Black Rock County, Dublin. Dear nanny and granddad, I hope you are well. I am so bored. I'd say you are too, but it will be over at some stage. From Aoife. To nanny and granddad, I hope you guys are staying safe. I have been baking a lot now and I know how to make flapjacks by myself. Love, Kate. Remember, wash your hands. I received this postcard from someone I have never met, but which means the world to me. Dear Chrissy, just a quick thought at this strange time. A year has passed since our paths crossed. Thank you for your letter. Apologies for my slow response. I hope your life is good and purposeful. This too shall pass. Derek. My name is Siobhan. I got this postcard from my granny. Dear Siobhan, I was just delighted to receive your beautiful card this morning. You have a gift, and it is great to see it being used. Keep it up. Homemade things are so much nicer than shop ones. They are unique and arrive with some love from the person who sends them. Well done. Say hi to the guys there. Love you to bits, Granny. And that was Siobhan Healy reading a postcard she received from her granny Duffy. A huge thank you to everybody who has shared a message with us so far. They really remind us how important it is to stay connected with friends and family at the moment. If you'd like to send an audio recording, you can email it to morningireland at rte.ie with postcard in the subject line. We'd love to hear from you and we'll play as many of the recordings as we can on the programme next week. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.